Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Like you heard, our next sermon series on discipleship is starting next Sunday, and it's a six-week series, six principles on discipleship. It's going to be really practical, but that means we're kind of in the land in between, between celebrating and speaking on Easter and the next sermon series coming up. We're kind of like the children of Israel. We're no longer in Egypt, but we're not to the promised land yet. We're like in the land in between. So that means that we have some added freedom this morning on the content of the sermon time, because typically we're going through a sermon. Uh, We just went through hop, skipping, jumping through the gospel of John through the winter. So what are we going to speak on this morning? That's the thought I thought to myself about a month back when I was looking at the preaching calendar and thinking, okay, we've got a little bit of freedom here. So I had two big thoughts on what we should do this morning, thinking about the fact that we just got out of the Gospel of John, we're going into a series on discipleship. So here's my two big thoughts. I think we should go to the Old Testament today because we haven't spent a lot of time in the Old, De- Old Testament recently. Somebody's excited there in the back. I love the Old Testament, the narrative, preaching a narrative, preaching a story, the characters, the plot, the climax, the outcome. That's my favorite, my favorite style of scripture to preach through. So we're going to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 18, uh, because in this six-week discipleship series, we're going to spend some time going through the book of Acts and into the epistles in the New Testament. So let's take a little break from the New Testament and look at the Old Testament. One of the questions I had is, do we see any practical discipleship principles in the Old Testament? Before the rabbis and the disciples, before Jesus and his disciples, before the Great Commission, are there any pictures of discipleship in the Old Testament? So we're going to be in Exodus 18. My second big thought was this, and it didn't originate with me. In conversations looking towards this discipleship series, the key thought that came out when we discussed this with our board and with other ministry leaders and folks in our church family was, we need to preach discipleship practically. Like real life, applicable, rubber meets the road discipleship. We need to understand the philosophy and the academia and where it lands in scripture for sure, but then we need to make it applicable. We need to make this real life stuff. So those are my two big thoughts. We're going to be in the Old Testament and we're going to be talking about discipleship very practically, very real life. Okay. Exodus chapter 18. Are you there? If you're not there in your copy, we're going to have it up on the screen as well. For those participating at home online, special welcome to you. It should be in the lower third of your screen, like right here. We can't see it in the room, but you should be able to see it on your screen. Uh, We could look at all kinds of examples in the Old Testament. Moses and Joshua, young Joshua, or Moses and young Caleb. We could look at Naomi and Ruth. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. You remember that interaction? I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to forsake you. Eli and Samuel. Samuel comes running to Eli. You called me. No, I didn't call you. He comes again. And then Eli realizes it's the Lord calling you, Samuel. Next time he calls, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Uh, We could talk about Samuel and Saul. The prophet Samuel had a huge impact on Saul's early years as king. Jonathan and David, their hearts are knit together. Elijah and Elisha. Elisha takes Elijah's mantle after Elijah is carried to heaven in the chariot of fire. I would have loved to have seen that, wouldn't you? All right, we're in Exodus 18. Let's get some context for the book of Exodus. The early chapters of Exodus are all about Moses' early life. Moses is born to a family, a Hebrew family, who are slaves in Egypt. And Pharaoh is intimidated by the Hebrew people and how fast they're growing. So he comes up with this plan, much like when Jesus was born. Pharaoh's going to take out all of the kids under the age of two. So Moses' mother makes this basket of reeds, places Moses in the basket, sends him down the Nile. Maybe you saw this in a movie depicted where the hippopotamus are are lurching forward and he just cruises through the middle. And his sister Miriam is watching from the bank. 
And it turns out Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt, takes in Moses. Pharaoh adopts Moses into his family. And then Moses' mother is actually hired to raise her son, who she just gave up for his protection. Uh, We spoke on that Mother's Day last year. Do you remember that? His mom is paid to raise his son, her son, at Pharaoh's expense, which is crazy. Moses has the best education, the best diet, all kinds of opportunities growing up in Pharaoh's palace 40 years. But God is nudging him and pulling out his heart back to his own people, the Hebrew people. And he sees the hardship, the hard labor that Pharaoh is placing on God's people, the Hebrew people in slavery in Egypt. So he decides he's going to take action. He's going to take matters into his own hands. He acts out in the flesh and he kills an Egyptian slave driver, murders him, tries to cover it up, tries to hide it, but be sure your sin will find you out. And he's got to flee. He's got to run into the wilderness to the land of Midian. And a guy named Jethro, the priest of Midian, takes him in, gives him a job, gives him a home. He marries his daughter Zipporah. So now Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. And Moses spends 40 years in Midian watching sheep. And then there's this one day, this burning bush, but it's not consumed. And Moses steps in and a voice speaks, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. I'm going to send you back to my people. I've heard their cry. You're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But who should I say sent me when they ask? Tell them the great I am is sending you. But how will I know that you go with me? Take that staff in your hand, set it on the floor. It becomes a serpent. Now grab it by the tail. It turns back to a staff. Put your hand inside your cloak, Moses. Take it out. It's covered in leprosy. Put it back in your cloak. Take it out. It's fully restored. But I'm not good at speaking. So how are we going to do that? Well, remember your brother, Aaron? He's really good at speaking. He will speak for you. So Moses obeys, he goes to Pharaoh, God, the great I am, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, yeah, sure, no. And then the 10 plagues of Egypt happen. And the 10th plague is the death angel. And God says to the people, find a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish or defect. You kill that lamb and you take the blood and put it on the doorposts and lintel. And when the death angel comes for the firstborn son in the household, he will see the blood of the spotless lamb and pass over your house. It's a picture of Jesus. The Jewish people celebrate the Passover and Jesus came to the final Passover with his disciples. We talked about this. And he instituted a new covenant in his blood because he is the spotless lamb. Not just to cover sin, but to cleanse us from all sin. Eventually, finally, after that 10th plague, Pharaoh says, get out of here. Moses leads the people who are already prepared. That was one of the instructions with the Passover. Have your cloak, have your staff ready, because when God says go, it's time to go. And they start heading east. They get to the Red Sea. God instructs Moses to touch the water with his staff. And the the sea opens, and they walk through on dry land. And Pharaoh and his army are now pursuing them. They come into the sea, and God swallows up Pharaoh and his army. You can go check this out on YouTube this afternoon, but apparently they found remnants of Pharaoh's army at the bottom of the Red Sea, which I think is pretty cool. They get into the wilderness, and God is providing for them with manna, with water, but they're not without their share of troubles. The book of Exodus is about God bringing his people out of Egypt, and then it quickly turns into God taking Egypt out of his people. I heard somebody say this, Exodus and then the book of Leviticus. Exodus is about the exit from Egypt. Leviticus is about leaving Egypt. Maybe that's a way to remember it. Exodus is out of Egypt. Leviticus is leaving it in Egypt, getting rid of the culture and the gods and the traditions and the customs and submitting themselves fully to God. So that's where we're at in the story. The Hebrew people are in the wilderness. Moses is leading them, but they're not without their share of problems. Exodus 18 and verse 1. Ready? Was that enough context for you? Okay, what time are we at? Verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. 
Now Jethro's from Midian. He's not technically an Israelite, but he does serve God as a priest in Midian. He has this close relationship with Moses, 40 years. Jethro is close enough to Moses so that he could see what God was doing in Moses' life, through Moses' life, in the lives of the Hebrew people as he led them out of Egypt. That's my prayer for our church. That our lives would practically display God at work to the people around us and the people who know us best. Does God work practically in your life? Is it evident to the people around you who know you best, who can see what's going on in your life? Wow, you look good. Well, actually, I started a new diet and fitness plan and I've lost some weight. I can tell it's working. Wow, you seem really positive. What's going on? Well, I just got some good news for my doctor. I'm no longer on medication. It's like a new lease on life. I can tell there's just a, a glow about you. Do people ever ask why you seem to be coping so well in the midst of tragedy and say, what's going on? How are you doing so well? Well, my God is the great I am. And he's already been on the other side of this tragedy that I'm going through. He's in control of it. He knows how it plays out. And he just says, let my request be made known to him. And somehow, which I can't fully explain, his peace enters my heart and my mind. And I know he's in control and he's got it and he's going to work this together for good. I can tell. It shows in your life. Here's the first point I want to make. In order for God to see people, in order for people to see God at work in your life, you need people in your life. It's pretty deep, isn't it? Um, discipleship, mentorship, leadership, it starts with relationship. It's the first ship that's got to lead the harbor before the other ships join the fleet. It starts with relationship. If you don't have people that are close to you who know what's going on in your life, that have some influence and some trust and some camaraderie and some history there, then how can people see God at work in your life if they don't know anything about your track record or what you've been through or what you're going through? You need people in your life. Look at verse 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom. That's a good name. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name of the other son was Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help. And he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro knows Moses' history. He knows Moses' story. He knows the trials and the sufferings that Moses has been through. Because guess what? Jethro was there when Moses was at his lowest point after having murdered an Egyptian slave driver and ran to the wilderness to try and hide from his sin. Jethro took him in. Jethro gave him opportunity and responsibility and a family and a home and a job and believed in him and restored some faith in him. And they built this mutual trust relationship over 40 years. Jethro knew what Moses had been through. Jethro has 40 years with Moses in his back pocket. Now, why was Moses' wife and two boys with the father-in-law instead of with Moses. We should probably clarify that. Potentially, Moses saw how hard this was going to be coming out of Egypt into the wilderness, and he sent his family with the in-laws for a while for safekeeping. Now the in-laws are bringing the family back so they can travel the rest of the way with Moses through the wilderness. Look at verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. I like how Jethro goes to where Moses is. Instead of complaining, you know, I've got your wife and your sons here. Why don't you ever come get them? Do you not care? He, he meets Moses where Moses is at. This is why relationship is so key in discipleship. Discipleship is not a one-size-fits-all 
program and therefore relationship is so necessary. Has anybody ever tried on those one size fits all hats? Does that actually work for anybody? Some, sometimes the tag says one size fits most, which I think is a little more accurate. I've got a big head, so I have issues with that. Maybe you've never noticed. The hat thing, not my head thing. <laughs> Jethro knows what Moses has been through and can meet him where he's at. Now, I've told you before about a missions trip that I was on to New York City back when I was in high school, grade 11 or 12. And we did street evangelism in New York City where you don't know anybody's history, nobody's story. You're just walking up to random strangers on the street with tracks. Uh, we had this cool little tool called an Evangicube, which like unfolded and refolded to share the story of the gospel. So you'd walk up to a random stranger and say, hey, do you have a moment to hear how much God loves you? Most of the time it would be total ignoring and just continuing walking through. Sometimes if somebody stopped and you told the story, maybe the response was, yeah, I've heard that before, or I don't believe that, or just move on with your day. I've got to tell you, the, the most impact that we had there on that trip that I saw was in the Bronx at a park in connection with a local church that, that knew the area, knew the culture, and knew that handing out bag lunch was a good way to minister in that park. Uh, we're walking through, we're handing out bagged lunches, and people have time there. They're not in a rush. They're not in the business district with their suit and their, their briefcase and their cell phone going to the next meeting. They're maybe unemployed, maybe impoverished, maybe homeless, and they have time to sit and talk. And when you can sit and talk with somebody and gain a little bit of relationship and hear their story and where they're at, the Holy Spirit prompts you as to where God can work specifically and practically in their life, and they're so much more receptive to that once you've built the relationship. Now, I know there's a connection between evangelism and discipleship, and we're going to talk about that in our series, but relationship is so key, so key. Jethro meets Moses where he's at in the wilderness because Jethro knows Moses' story. Exodus 18 and verse 6. When he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. How kind of the father-in-law to send word ahead instead of just showing up and knocking on the door. Verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. There's this genuine care and hospitality. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Not just the concept or the philosophy of how God is able to deliver, but the practical implications of how God actually worked in their situation, in their life right here and now. Jethro is just listening to Moses. He's taking it in. He's not telling him. He's not teaching him. He's not correcting him. He's just listening. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord, all capitals, that's Jehovah, the God of Israel, the true God, the Lord is greater than all gods, lowercase g. Because in this affair, in this specific practical instance with people I know, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro gained an appreciation for God from Moses' experience, from Moses sharing what God had done practically in his life and in the life of the people. Jethro saw how great God is through Moses' life. Moses told Jethro how God had worked practically in his life. Last week, Steve ended the sermon time and he said something like this. God wants to do a work in your life, and then God wants to do a work through your life in the life of somebody else. God wants to do a work in your life, 
And then God wants to use you to do a work in somebody else's life. How different is that compared to, hey, you can try this. It didn't work for me, but maybe it'll work for you. Hey, have you tried praying about it? Oh, does that, does that work? Did it work for you? Well, no, it didn't work for me, but it, maybe it'll work for you. Okay, I guess I better get right on that. Thanks for the boost of confidence. If we want to see God working through our lives, then we need to see where God is working in our lives. Because if we're blind to what God is doing in our life, how are we ever in good conscience and faith going to have a conversation with somebody about how God can work in their life? I've never really experienced him working in and through my life, but maybe he can work in your life. Yeah, right, thanks. Moses had to be zoomed in on what God was doing because here's the fact. There's two million people that experienced the same thing Moses experienced in the 10 plagues in Egypt, the blood over the doorposts and lintel in God's deliverance, the Passover of the death angel, Coming to the Red Sea, seeing the waters part, walking through on dry ground. Turning around to see Pharaoh and his army being consumed by those same waters by the mighty hand of God. Eating the manna in the wilderness, seeing the water, the bitter water, cured so that they could drink it in the wilderness. They experienced all the same things and tens of thousands of them interpreted it as a negative experience. They saw and experienced God working in their lives the same way God worked in Moses' life, and they interpreted it totally opposite. Do you remember the leaks in Egypt? Oh, yeah. Why leeks? Who would get excited about leeks? I remember in Bible school, we had leek soup one time, and they never served it again because I think there was so much complaints. The melons in Egypt. Do you remember the melons? I'm sorry for anybody who likes leeks. I apologize. They turned it into a complaint. The same thing that Moses is giving God praise and glory for and inspiring this faith rising up in Jethro that now I see that God, Jehovah, the God of Israel is greater than all the gods of all the other nations out there. The same things that inspired faith and testimony in Moses brought murmuring and complaining among the people. Isn't that crazy? Moses could have easily told his father-in-law how hard it had been. How frustrating the people are. Jethro, I got this one guy, you're not going to believe it. Every morning he comes to me, the same guy. Same question every day. So Moses, what are we going to do today? And I tell him every single day, we're going to follow the cloud by day and the fire by night. And if it stays, we're going to stay. If it moves, we're going to move until we get to the promised land. And then he obliges and he goes home. Guess what? The next day he comes to me. So Moses, same question. So frustrating leading these people. Moses had lots to complain about, but he also had lots to be thankful for. And he chose to focus on where God was working in his life and for his people. That testimony deeply affected this old priest, Jethro, who had been serving God for a long time. And now Jethro says, now I know. Because of how God demonstrated his power over Egypt. It's like what the Honduras missions team shared after the trip this winter. When they told the kids how God was practically working in their lives, the kids were blown away. God is real because he's working in your life. Not just a philosophical or academic thought, but an actual loving, intentional, involved, compassionate father. So here's what I know. I know that God is working in your life. Not because I have some supernatural microscope that shows me these things, but because you're here this morning with breath in your lungs and there's probably a vehicle out there that you took to get here this morning, which was parked in your driveway of your house that you get to live in last night. And we have lunch served this afternoon in the cafe, and you're welcome to come and enjoy it. I know God's working in your life. Here's what I also know. You have people in your life. 
You have family, you have friends, you have coworkers, you have neighbors, you have people sitting around you right now. You have people who are under your influence, whether you consider yourself a leader or not. If you're not intentionally counting God's blessings in your life on a day-to-day basis, it is so much harder to infuse what God is doing into your conversations with the people around you. So here's what I want you to do. You can start right now if you want. Write down what God has done for you today, yesterday, this week, this month, this year. Write it down. Just take a note of it. I don't care if you're not a journaler or what, if you need to just say it in a voice memo to yourself, whatever you got to do, take note of what God is doing in your life. And then when you're in those conversations with the people around you, you are going to be so much more apt to infuse that conversation with the grace and the goodness and the glory of the God who's working in your life. Okay? Is that fairly practical? I think that's something we can all do. Yeah? Okay. Before I preach this sermon up here, I often preach it in my basement, sometimes in my closet. This morning was my closet because all the clothes sucks up the noise and I don't bother my family. There should be a little more of a response here than in my closet with my sweaters. <laughs> think. As you become more aware of what God is working in your life, you'll have something to talk about when you're with people. Look at verse 12. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Do you know what a meal does? Do you know what cafe is going to do up there? And the great part of this illustration is we actually have round tables. When you sit around a round table, there's not necessarily a head or a foot. There's no hierarchy. There's no different levels. It's like we're on the same plane here. All the elders, Aaron the priest, Moses the leader, Jethro the father-in-law are all sitting around this table enjoying bread together. There is this aspect of mutual discipleship, mutual mentorship that I'm not at the table because I have life all figured out and now I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm not up here on this stage because... In my early 30s, hey, I've learned everything there is to learn, so let me tell you about it. If that's the case, then I need to repent, you need to repent, we all need to repent, because that's not the case. There's this sense of sharing the journey together, that as we're going through life together, I need to be mindful of my own personal discipleship and how I'm devoting my life to Christ as I'm encouraging other people in their relationship, in their following, in their giving their lives to God as well. This isn't one person telling another person how to do it. This is two baggers pointing out where to find bread. This is two people who are in desperate need of God, encouraging one another in their desperate need for God. Disciples making disciples. That happens to be our mission here at Faith Baptist Church. So this is the first point. I know the first point. Um... Probably the most important is relationship. If there's no relationship, there is no discipleship. If there is no relationship, there is no accountability. Not someone to beat you over the head and shovel on the shame when you mess up, but somebody to walk through life together with you who knows your highs and lows, your struggles and your triumphs and can encourage you in it. Someone to check in, someone who knows, someone who's got your back. Verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening, which includes his father-in-law Jethro, if you read the next verse. That'd be some pressure, wouldn't it? Having your father-in-law look over your shoulder while you're working on your project. Having your mother-in-law in the kitchen while you're preparing Easter dinner for the family. I, uh, we have great relationships with our parents, so I got to be careful with the in-law jokes because I have awesome in-laws. But it's always tricky when you have somebody who's observing you, who you know is so much better than, at it than you and has way more experience and you kind of feel insecure. It's, that's really tough, but it's so important because you know what? We tend to be terrible at self-evaluation. 
Have you ever filled out the online form for your banking investment app and it asks you, what's your net worth? How much can you afford in fluctuation? What is your knowledge of investments? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Oh, that's not an option. It won't accept that. Have you ever gone skiing and had to get a rental and you have to fill out the form where it says, are you a novice, a beginner, an intermediate, an advanced, or an expert skier? And in high school, when we go on the ski trip, I always circled expert because your friends are looking over your shoulder and, you know. And then they make the bindings way too tight and the skis way too short and then I'd end up in the trees or something like that. Uh, there's this social media trend where an interviewer asks a group of students to rate their intelligence from one to ten. And they pick out a certain student, okay, what would you say your intelligence level is? And the first person always says the same two numbers, uh, seven, maybe an eight. And then they give them a trivia question, which they almost always blunder. And then the interviewer turns to the next student and says, okay, what would you rate your intelligence one to 10? And they always seem to give the same answer, uh, maybe a five or a six. Why do they say those numbers? Well, because they don't want to be like their friend who said seven or eight and then blundered the question. So I'm going to rate myself a little bit lower because it's so subjective and it depends on the context. And how do I look? Well, I don't want to look dumb. So we evaluate ourselves based on the social context instead of what is really objectively happening. You know what tends to be the cringiest thing? If you have to film yourself doing what you do and then watch the footage back i.e. what we're doing right here, right now. I watch just a few snippets of the sermon from Sunday. If I'm the one preaching, because that's about all that I can handle. Because I just think like, do I, do I really stand like that? Do I, is that what my voice sounds like? It doesn't sound like that up here. Did I really say those things? Uh, when I was in high school, I loved mountain biking, still love mountain biking, and our youth pastor took a few of us and we made a dirt jump mountain biking video at the 104s, which is just off the highway in DeBert. You literally park on the side of the highway by the Truro sign as you're going in. I don't know if those jumps are still there, but those jumps looked massive in person. And you would hit the jump thinking you were going to die. And as you're going over, you would do a little tweak with the handlebars, maybe a little tweak with the bike. And it just felt so cool. We made this video. Pastor Bruce made this video and we watched it back with the youth group. And it was so hilarious because <laughs> here we are going over those rinky-dink jumps. You can't tell that we're doing absolute anything. I used to think that I was an incredible basketball player until I watched the footage back and thought, really, is that how I run? Do I only jump that high? Did I even dribble the basketball in the game? It seems so much greater in my head. We're really poor at evaluating ourselves. You know what we tend to be even worse at? Asking for honest feedback and constructive criticism. Kind of like Steve said during the giving time, we're terrible at asking for help. Because we don't want people to know that we struggle just like every other person in the entire world struggles. Asking for honest, constructive criticism. Asking for accountability. People can often see things in your life that you can't see, that you've grown totally blind to especially when they're sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Jethro from Midian, having never seen Moses' leadership over the people, but having known him at his lowest point, 40 years of relationship to call on, this Jethro watches Moses and what he does as leader all day, from morning till night, fresh eyes. And then he takes initiative to have an important growth conversation with Moses. Jethro sees an area where Moses is somewhat off mission as God's leader over God's people. And Jethro takes initiative to have the conversation. Look at verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people are standing around you from morning until evening. 
Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. You ever ask someone the big why questions of why they do things the way they do? We're, we're really good with the what, the who, the when, all of the urgent conversation, how's the weather, and then let's go get wings. But when do we ever get below the surface level and talk about the big why questions of life? Why do you think you can do life all alone? Why do you believe that there's nobody who cares for you who wants to carry this load with you? Why do you think that isolating yourself is actually going to bring about a good result in any category of your life? Why do you think you can do this alone, Moses? Jethro cares enough for Moses to have this tough conversation. I wonder if anybody had attempted to give Moses this criticism before. Hey, Moses, this probably shouldn't be all on you, bro. And then Moses is like, do you even know me? Were you at the burning bush? Was it you who was holding the staff when it hit the water? Right? It'd be easy for Moses to get this Messiah complex that it's all on me. I'm God's man. I'm the one God chose. I'm going to settle all the disputes. I'm going to fix everybody's problem. Moses spends all of his day sitting and judging the squabbles of the people. Moses, that guy stole my sheep. Tell him to give it back. Moses, I can't find my kid today. Can you send out the alert? Moses, I've got a leak in my tent. Do you have any duct tape? <laughs> Do you remember as we were coming out of COVID, there was this big push to get your passport because now we can all travel again? And my family was going to go to Michigan to see my wife's side of the family that we hadn't seen through that whole weird time of life. So I sat in the passport office, is it Service Canada, down next to the Metro Center in Halifax? And they have this long hallway corridor that just curves through the building until you end up at the person that you have to talk to. So I got all my paperwork. I got down there as soon as I could get there. I think it's like 9.30 in the morning. And I sat in the hallway with a bunch of strangers. My brother-in-law showed up to give me lunch. Thank you, Jeremy. And then I saw the passport people right before they closed at 5 p.m. Maybe you had a similar experience. But I'm in a hallway with, I don't know, 100 people all trying to do the same thing. I waited all that day to get to sit in front of a person and say, here's my kid's ID, here's their passport photos, here's proof that I am their father, here's the forms we have filled out, they stamped it, put it in an envelope, set it to the side, and in five minutes we were done. Moses is trying to have that sort of government over these people. It's not just hard and wearisome on Moses, it's hard and wearisome on the people who've got to sit there all day and wait for the next person in line so that they can jump up and ask Moses about their lost sheep. It's not a good system. It's not functioning well, and that's what Jethro is going to point out. Jethro takes initiative. You know, today we have an even greater blessing in the fact that if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit, you have God's Spirit indwelling you, who can guide you and prompt you and give you the courage and give you the words to speak, so that Jethro takes initiative to have this conversation. We have the Holy Spirit prompting us to have these important conversations with people. Correction, reproof, encouragement, those are the one another's that we've looked at. Uh, I was talking to a friend this week over coffee about the subtle promptings of the Spirit. And we referenced times when we obeyed the prompting and we took the initiative and we saw God work through that. And we saw the areas where other people had planted, other people had watered, and God was going to give the increase. And the question was asked, why do we forget that? Why do we forget all those times in life where God's spirit was prompting us to do something, to have a conversation, to reach out, to be generous, to spend some time. And it was actually one of those times where we responded in faith and we took action, took initiative, and we saw, wow, God was at work here and I was just a small cog in the wheel. But then the next time we just shove that subtle prompting to the background and move on as if it were our own thoughts. Why do we do that? 
Why do we forget? Why do we fail to take initiative when the Spirit leads? Jethro took initiative, challenged Moses in his leadership, in the position and the place that God had him in. Look at verse 17. We're coming. A couple pages left. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. It's tough to call people out, isn't it? in a constructive way, not just a critical way. It's pretty easy to to put that comment under the post on Facebook, all the while knowing this isn't really going to help the situation. I'm just throwing my two cents in there. It's difficult to have a good, constructive, critical conversation with somebody face-to-face and say, have you considered the amount of work? This is unsustainable. This is obsessive. This is unhealthy. This is not good. No one wants to have that conversation, but if you love the person, then you will have that conversation face-to-face in a loving relationship. Had anyone told Moses up to this point that his leadership style was not practical, not healthy? Had Moses ever received any constructive feedback other than complaining and murmuring from the people? Maybe everybody was scared to tell him. Maybe people were scared to offer to help shoulder the load because they got this vibe from Moses that, oh, he's got it all together. He's the leader. He's the man. He's God's man. Look at verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Somebody needs to hear this today. You've been trying to go alone in your own strength, carry your own burden. Remember in Matthew where Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find rest for your weary souls. Verse 19. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. See, this is more than advice. This is a God thing. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Don't try and be God for the people. Take their cases to God. Verse 20. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they'll bring to you, but any small matter they'll decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you men I feel like we're particularly bad at this I tend to think so many times especially with practical little household jobs I'll just do it myself if I got to call somebody and ask for help I'll just lift the deck on a wheelbarrow and get my wife to stand on the other end to make sure I don't hit anything and I'll wreck my back for a week, but I'll get it done and I won't have had to ask for anybody's help. Why do we tend to think that it's so much easier just to do it ourselves? I'll just get it done. If I got to call somebody and explain the project and explain why I'm doing it and get them to bring their tools and wait until next week, I'm just going to do it now. Verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Looking to God, inviting other people to share the journey with you, trusting other people to help carry the load, not trying to do it all yourself. It'd be easy for Moses to get that Messiah complex, wouldn't it? I mean, after all, he is the one carrying the stick. He is the one that was at the burning bush. He is God's man to lead the people. I always think back to the first event I ever organized. If I could just uh, publicly shame myself here for a moment and hopefully you you, uh, gain some wisdom from my folly. Uh, The first event I ever planned as a young pastor all on my own was a youth worship New Year's Eve event. At a Bible camp, we called it Collective. We brought a bunch of of young adults together and we made this promotional video that we sent out to local churches. We made this cool graphic to go with it and it had cool music in the background that I chose because it was my event. We booked the Bible camp. 
I booked a guest speaker from a local university and then I asked him if I could get a band from the local university to lead worship and it was gonna be this big thing that was gonna change the world. I drove the cargo van and transported all of the musical tech equipment, speaker, sound system, all that. I hooked it up myself, had no idea what I was doing, all kinds of problems with it. I forgot the keyboard, and I had to drive back to the church building, get our keyboard, bring it back, because I miscommunicated with the band. I ran the computer, set up the overhead projector. I hosted the event. I ran the sound system. I ran around like a chicken with my head cut off, didn't have any time to connect with anybody at the event, and I knew that it was, it was a total disaster when we got to 11.58 at night, New Year's Eve night, and the main speaker says, okay, Josh, we're two minutes to New Year's Eve. What do you want to do? And I had no plan. I was like a deer in headlights. And I can still feel to this day what it was like to hold that microphone in front of everybody and have no idea what I was going to do. And then everybody left. And I hadn't thought about cleanup. So it was me and just a few friends who cleaned up all that stuff. The stage design that I had built, the equipment that I moved and didn't ask any help for. And I look at that thing and thought, man, that was a total flop. Because I built the whole thing on myself. I, it would be great if I could say I learned all the lessons that night and I've never attempted anything like that before. But man... How different could it have been if someone I trusted, someone I knew, someone a little more experienced than me, who had been down this road before, someone who was close enough to see all this take place, if they took me aside to offer some wisdom and advice from their years of experience, some support, bring some realism into my outlook, ask questions like, have you thought about this? Why are you doing it this way? Why aren't you asking for anyone's help? And if I had enough common sense and leading of the spirit to humble myself and hear their wisdom, how much different could that event have been? Jethro explains what he sees as a preferred future for Moses. A better leadership model, calling on his years of experience, his relationship with Moses. Jethro offers a better way. This is the value of community, collective leadership, eldership, the wisdom in a council of many. Jethro's really calling Moses to leadership development. I like watching Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank. And when that young first-time entrepreneur comes up and displays their business and it's worth however many million and his response is, yeah, but what if you get hit by a bus? What is the business? Do you have any other leaders? Do you have any other people? Do you have any people around you? If it's all on you then how fragile is it? How fragile is your discipleship if you're trying to do it all on your own? It's really good advice. Call it leadership, call it mentorship, call it discipleship. It cannot be done alone. Nobody in this room will ever be at any point where they can do life totally alone without the help of anybody. So how does Moses take Jethro's instruction? Here's where we'll finish. Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, chief over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, any small matter, they decided among themselves. Verse 27, then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Here's my closing thought. Scripture does a really good job of summarizing and nutshelling a big long story that took place over a long amount of time in one chapter of the Bible. My guess is Exodus chapter 18 didn't happen in an afternoon. I'm thinking that for Moses to hear Jethro's advice, implement Jethro's advice, choose able-bodied men, train them, delegate to them, have them in a position where they feel competent enough to make a judgment call, decide the policies on how those judgment calls will be made. We're talking weeks. We're talking months. How long would Exodus 18 have taken? 
And at the very end, then Jethro can go home. Jethro was committed not just to give the advice, the criticism, send a message, hey, you should do this, but Jethro was committed for the implementation, the application, the how this plays out and how the rubber meets the road. And he was there with Moses to help lead and mentor him through it. Discipleship is a commitment. It's not a quick instruction that we throw at some. It's not a booklet that we throw at somebody and say, here, read this, do this, then you're disciple. No, no, no. It's a relational commitment over a period of time. Are we willing to make this commitment? Are we willing to say, as is our motto here at Faith Baptist Church, are we willing to share the journey with somebody? How many years did Jethro invest into Moses? Let's not have the thought that somebody needs to make the change right here, right now, and get it all figured out. Let's be willing to commit to people for the long haul, for the cause of discipleship, for the cause of the mission of Jesus Christ. All right, we've got to end there. We do have cafe. You don't have to run. We've got food up in the cafe. I'm going to pray now. I'll pray a blessing for the food as well because it's, it's time to eat. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you so much for this time together. I praise you, your great and holy name, for your word, for your ways, for the ways that you've worked back in the Old Testament to bring your people out of slavery and bondage and into freedom and into a promised land. God, spiritually, you've done the exact same thing for us. You've brought us out of the slavery and bondage of sin and you've given us newness of life because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in rising again from the grave. And there is no way that there are not practical implications of that in our everyday life. God, would you help us to count our blessings, to be mindful and focused in on what you are doing in our life so that when we, end, when we are in conversations with other people, we're ready to share about how you are working in our lives. God, would you give us the courage? Would you give us the initiative to follow the prompting of your spirit and to speak up when it comes to the mutual edification of other believers? God, would you help us to be faithful and committed long-term that this would always be done in a heart and a spirit and a context of relationship, of love for one another, God. God, thank you that you've loved us. And therefore, we can love one another and encourage one another in our love for you. God, we pray for this discipleship series and this important conversation in the life of our church that's all about our mission to be disciples, making disciples. I pray that there would be practical things that people would draw out, that we can put into practice right now, putting your word into our everyday life and living out what it means to be disciples, making disciples. Would you give us clarity on that? Holy Spirit, would you be leading us in that? Jesus, thank you for saving us. God, thank you for adopting us into your family. We thank you for lunch now in the cafe for the fellowship we're going to enjoy, for the names that will be signed up for this workday on Saturday, for the connections that will be made. God, we praise you so much for how you can work in these things. We leave all the results to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.